Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Okay, I changed mics this week, so this might sound a little bit different. Um, I've been trying to fix my levels and it's, um, yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been using a vintage U87 to record this podcast, which is just not the best use of that microphone. And I've changed to this, uh, this sure podcast mic. And who would have thought it? It doesn't sound as good. I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked. But um, yeah, I need to stop using that mic for, for this particular purpose. I'm going to drop it at some point. And it's okay if you drop a sure podcast mic, even though the fact, I mean, they are quite expensive as well, actually, these days. Anyway, let's get focused, shall we? On the show this week, we have someone who is a resident at Smart Bar for many years. Now, I played at Smart Bar recently. In fact, we did a Hot Flush 20 night with George Fitzgerald and myself at Smart Bar. So, um, it's a venue which is close to my heart. It's just a great venue, in fact. But yeah, it's Alinka on the show this week. So we're talking a lot about Chicago. Also her move to Europe, her history and heritage from Ukraine, and yeah, lots of other stuff besides. So um, this is a good one this week. I think you're going to enjoy it. We get into some pretty meaty stuff, actually. So um, yeah, it's a good one. Okay, no real housekeeping to get through this week. Just a quick note to say, as always, you can support the show on Patreon if you're liking what we're doing here, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two options. You can jet over there to grab the details. I've given the full details a few times on the show recently, so if you're a regular listener, you're probably bored of that. But if you want to do it, we'd be really, really appreciative. Patreon.com slash scuba official, as I said. If you can't, if you can't afford it, if you don't want to, that's also cool. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. That really does help the show too. 
So, um, yeah, hit the five-star button on whatever app, whatever method of listening this is coming to you from. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you through to our server, which contains a Not A Diving podcast channel and provides you with the opportunity to, yeah, give uh, feedback, make suggestions, berate me for my shortcomings as a podcaster, perhaps. Although people don't tend to do that because I think I'm actually quite a good podcaster. (laughs) We are 75 episodes deep in this podcast. Pod, by the way, this is episode 75. So, um, yeah, we're making progress. We are making progress. Right. Okay. I'm going to shut up. And without further delay, here is Alinka. Alinka, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm good. Happy the sun's out in Berlin, finally. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you moved there 2016. Is that what I, is that? Correct? Um, like the very end of 2015. Yeah. Like end of November. Okay. Uh, from Chicago? Yeah, from Chicago. So I'd been in Ch- Chicago since uh, 1988, basically, since I was eight years old. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm... And, and you were born in Kiev, right? Yeah, born in Kiev. Okay. That's... Okay. So I'm just going to jump in with the with the heavy stuff. Okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> like, what's your view of how the dance scene generally has dealt with the situation in Ukraine. Like I think um, when the invasion first happened, there was a lot of kind of hysteria around it in the scene and there was some, you know, visceral reactions, I think understandably. Um, But it's kind of resolved itself in something a little bit different now. So, I mean, how do you, how do you see how people have, um, yeah, dealt with it at a kind of general level? Yeah. I mean, I think generally everyone's obviously people, there have to deal with a million other things and um, they've kind of come together and they've done amazing things and, you know, raised money and thrown events and that kind of stuff and help people um, find housing and, um, you know, anything that was needed. So I don't know. I was really just amazed at how strong and resilient my friends are that are from there and all the things that they were doing and still are. Um, to help raise awareness and also just, you know, help people, um, yeah, around them. But the scene as a whole, I don't know. I mean, I think people have different perspectives and different, obviously, based on their own experiences with these things. And a lot of people are really privileged to kind of never have to experience anything like that and be really far removed from it. So, you know, I think... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say because I think it just depends on um, the person and where they are and their perspective, I guess, and how they deal with it. Mm, yeah, okay. Have you been back to Kiev since the invasion? No. No, I haven't. Because, I mean, there, there, are, there have been parties going on and stuff, haven't there? I've, I've noticed a few people uh, have been there to play. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of... it's It's... It's difficult because I really do want to go back. I just, it's, you know, I don't know. It's hard because it's such a difficult and traumatizing situation in general. Even to see it from the outside, I don't, I haven't been back yet. I obviously want to go back as soon as I feel safe doing so. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, I don't know, 
it's it's a difficult situation, obviously. Yeah, I know. It's a difficult question to start with as well. Yeah. <laughs> I've <laughs> yeah. got to ambush you with that a little bit. No, it's all good. Um, yeah, I plan on going back as soon as I feel safe doing so. And it's it's definitely, I think about it all the time. And I miss my friends there and I miss playing there. And, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's definitely something I sit with every day and I'm trying to, you know, the sooner it can happen, obviously, the better. But, you know, it's, it's just a hard situation. I don't know if I feel safe traveling at the, right now with what's happening. No, absolutely. So you, you mentioned that you uh, arrived in the US in 88. So you were, a, you were a kid then, basically. Yeah. So we left when I was like seven and a half. And um, I mean, my parents knew we were leaving. It took them a while to, to get out, but I didn't know. So it was a bit overnight for me um I found out like literally the day before we were leaving I thought we were going camping because that's what they told me so yeah it was uh we we went um on the train to Vienna and we lived in Austria in between for like eight months and then we had family from my grandmother's side um that had kids in in Chicago and some other family in Chicago so they kind of helped us come over and get settled and um yeah but it was definitely crazy transition i didn't speak english at all and yeah what was the situation in ukraine towards the end of the soviet union i actually don't know much about it at all uh, we didn't hear a hell of a lot i mean we heard about the um the fall of i mean i, I remember hearing about romania in particular as a guy was a, you know, a kid as well but like so what was what was going on in ukraine in the context of you leave you guys leaving um well they were we were jewish refugees basically we had to give up our passports and you had to have um family i think they were only letting like uh as, well i don't know if they were letting other religions out but definitely i know like thousands of jews left in that time because you couldn't practice your religion and so but we had to give up our passports and everything um to get out so that was something uh that was a development in the 80s was it yeah i think so. well i'm not as educated on it as i should be either because i was such a little kid but um yeah, I mean, I, that was definitely a requirement. And we were sent to um, like religious Jewish schools when we got to the States as well. So I had to learn Hebrew and English at the same time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> which was crazy. Yeah. And uh, like our family's not religious at all. So it was kind of culture shock times two, I would say, just from going to like not practicing any religion and a communist country to America, which is overload of uh, <laughs> culture on its own. And yeah, I mean, I think in the States, it's kind of like as soon as you move there, you're kind of expected to blend in and you give up your your own cultural identity, I would say, in many ways, because, uh, yeah, I mean, you just want to kind of fit in, especially if you're a kid. Um, yeah, so that was kind of, I didn't really learn about Ukraine or knew, know that many people like other than our family friends and stuff until I started going back the last years when I was DJing there. Yeah, that, that was going to be my next question, actually. Yeah. So like, what was your kind of like relationship with, with your heritage up until, you know, up and into your adult life? Like how much did you, well, I mean, how much were you aware of it? As you said, you, know, you were a young kid when you, when you moved over. Yeah. I mean, all I held on to was kind of my memories of where I grew up, but I didn't really have like a deep connection to it. I guess I think I mean, because it was such a also like traumatic experience leaving so quickly and then going somewhere where you don't know anyone and kind of, you know, adapting. So my focus when I was little was obviously like just 
you know, fit in and become American. And, um, yeah, I think I didn't really think about it, to be honest, like growing up. I mean, I did, I always felt like there was something missing and I didn't really know where I came from. I didn't fit in exactly, you know, like to everyone else around me. Um, and then when I went back, it was like a super emotional experience. Like I finally, I met people like me. I understood where I came from. I realized like so many parts of me um, are similar to people from Ukraine and we have so much in common and I'm really proud to come from there. And so it kind of reconnected me to that and made me want to learn more and, you know, appreciate coming from there and being really proud to be Ukrainian. And also since... The war and everything, um, just seeing how strong the people are and, you know, just resilient and how they can just, you know, like they're just survivors and they're kind and, you know, despite of everything that's happening, they're still amazing human beings that are, you know, just, yeah, I'm just very proud. I think it's, it's taught me a lot going back and also just... Um, all the events. Yeah, when was the first time you played there? Um, 20, I want to say 29. It was right before COVID. So like uh, K41 just opened. So I played, I think it was November, December 2019. Yeah. I've heard, yeah, good things about K41 actually. Can you, yeah, tell us about it. Uh, it's brilliant. I mean, uh, like I cried, I think every time I played there, it was just okay. really <laughs> an intense experience. It's just like a really amazing venue. I mean, in the way that um, I don't want to compare it to anything, but like, you know, the energy in like Berghain Panorama Bar and like just um, it's different than that, though, because the people are different in the crowd. But it's just got a very special energy. It's like, you know, walking in and, you know, when you see the people and when you play there, it's a really like you really feel it. They're really appreciative. They're very open. You can play anything sound-wise. And, you know, it felt like I really connected with my people from the first time. And so it kind of grew. Like, I made so many friends, and they would come every time I played. And um, it was a very special venue, I would say, for me. Like, definitely the most meaningful gigs of my life. I mean, for, obviously for various reasons, but that club is just, uh, like... Even the backyard, I mean, it's like experiences that you probably would never forget. I don't know how else to, to word it. It's just a really special venue. Yeah, sure. So was was um was the first time you played it the first time you've been back to Ukraine since leaving? Yeah, since 88, yeah. Wow, okay. And they knew that actually. So I think, um, you know, that was something that, that they thought of that we talked about because they were like, you know, there's a lot of kids that emigrated out especially after after 1990 or 91 um so i think they knew it would be that kind of experience but yeah it was very family vibes like i met so many people from the first time we had this big dinner and you know people i'm still in touch with that i really um you know care about and yeah it was just very very special mm, yeah okay so yeah you mentioned moving to berlin in 2016 so what's been the difference in in your experience of doing music in in europe versus america versus the united states like 
I was very different kind of social setup in the way that society, you know, the social policy works and, you know, various different aspects to the way people live in in Europe. I think particularly in, in people, people who are trying to make a living in the arts. So can you, yeah, characterize the differences between the two places in your experience? Yeah, I mean... I've kind of had nine lives as a musician because of that. It's like I started, I guess, the end of 99, I started DJing. And, uh, you know, I ended up quitting for a few years, like around 2008 or nine, just because of that. It was kind of like, you know, when you're when you're 19 or 20, you think anything's possible and you're not really thinking about the future or things like health insurance. And, you know, um, it just became difficult to do that and always have another job and not kind of you know been able to survive off of it because yeah in the states i mean you don't have you don't have social benefits like health care to everybody i mean now it's a little bit better with obamacare but at the time it's like it's it's it makes it really difficult because these are things especially as you get older as an artist you have to think about like i have to be able to go to the doctor and pay my rent for music and things like that and yeah just uh you know, the thing that I fell in love with in Berlin, because I literally came here once for, for two shows and stayed for a week and then bought a plane ticket when I got back to Chicago and sold everything and moved like five months later. Um, it just felt, it felt like a community and it felt really like culturally appreciated here. Like I would always joke, like I could go to my like veterinarian or my dentist and whatever. And they're like asking me about playing in panorama bar and for guest list where you know in chicago it was like it's difficult because most people don't really know unless you know you don't really even know what a dj does if that makes sense it it wasn't like a respected profession like most people would be like you know if you're doing music it's a hobby so that's something that definitely it helped me grow a lot of confidence as well because i knew it was possible to do it here um, professionally and, um, yeah. And to have a community of people that appreciate you also obviously makes a difference in your confidence as an artist. How much of a problem do you think is it for just talking at a sort of broad level about the music scene on kind of electronic music in particular in the United States? Like, is it something which you think is really holding people back there? That kind of broad situation with, um, you know, just, just the ability to live, you know? I mean, it's definitely a disadvantage. I mean, you can definitely talk to a lot of like the most talented musicians you've ever met, especially the older generation. And, you know, they all had to get day jobs and stuff. So it's like it's it is limiting because, you know, for obvious reasons, you don't have, you know, this system to fall back on or you're not guaranteed to have health insurance. I mean, these are things like I could talk about the U.S. <laughs> forever, but I mean, it's it's just crazy to me that even if you had a job and you had insurance, if you got in like a really bad accident or something, like you would still have to pay out of pocket and it's just the crazy system there. So of course there's an advantage as an artist to, you know, being able to do your art and being able to support yourself and not having to worry about things like that. Um, yeah. And having more of a community and having it be a respected profession, even having things like KSK here, you know, it's just a lot of advantages of being in Europe, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've you know, people come on the show regularly and kind of talk up the various scenes in the US. And I'm always 
like not skeptical but you know i i'm I'm always kind of like raising my eyebrows slightly just because of the fact that so many us-based artists move to europe right and you know there's there's different reasons for that but i think you know the kind of things you're talking about are definitely a a big factor yeah i mean also like you know the scene here there's just so many clubs and like the travel's a lot easier you can go from country to country in an hour or two you know what i mean where in the states it's so big and it's so spread out and it's it's like the market's so different like just getting from new york to california is you know pretty daunting if you have to do it in one weekend and obviously people do it and my friends play all over the u.s and they have a much stronger scene now i think since the pandemic even like i think it's it's really thriving right now and there's a lot of really good events but yeah there's definitely advantages like i was coming here to do shows and uh then I just realized there's no point in, you know, renting a place or trying to stay with friends for two months when I can just move over. So what were the, yeah, what were the key, what were the kind of key things that happened that enabled you to like feel as, as at home as you do in Europe? And I guess in Berlin in particular, right? Because I mean, Berlin is a kind of special place, right? I think that there was plenty of European cities you could move to and not feel <laughs> that kind of community atmosphere, right? Yeah. I don't know what it is. Honestly, it's the first I wanted to leave Chicago for many years. And I was thinking about New York or LA and all these places. Um, And then I came here and it just felt like home, like it just felt easy somehow. I mean, I know it's not fully (laughs) an easy place. And of course, there's the bureaucracy and difficult things about Germany as well. But yeah, it just felt like home, like it just felt somehow relaxed and I always felt that in Chicago it felt like a big city but there's just something you know it's just compared to New York which is like I love it but it's chaotic (laughs) I always get tired after a few days Chicago always felt kind of like a more chill version of that and Berlin feels that way to me so what was the motivation for leaving Chicago you said you 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 wanted to for a while um I think I just really needed a change and I think because you know, I quit DJing for a few years and I did this other project. And then when I met Sean J. Wright and started uh, playing again and kind of had like my second chance at life, I just wanted a fresh start, you know, like I just, I knew that I needed that. It was just, you know, sometimes you just need to leave home and you need a new energy, especially if you're kind of getting a second chance at life and what you want to do in life. Okay, <laughs> that's an interesting turn of phrase. So can you explain that a bit further? I mean, when I started DJing, like I kind of knew I wouldn't be happy doing anything else. And just from, you know, like I started touring when I was quite young, but I didn't know how to make a career of it. Um, we didn't really have the resources. Like I was just teaching myself everything. I didn't know I should get an agent or do these things or have fees. I was just like working a side job and, you know, surviving. And so um, when I quit, I was just like completely burnt out and run down. And I thought like, I'm never going to make, you know, like a proper living off this. And I had pressure from my family. And, you know, like, you know, it's your late 20s. You kind of have to figure out what you're doing in life. You can't always have a side gig and, you know, just kind of survive. So let me let me just talk with that. What, what year are we in here? This is like 2008. Okay. So you spent most of the 2000s kind of trying to do this and... Yeah, exactly. Reached a kind of dead end. I wouldn't say it's a dead end, but I was just like, I just didn't feel inspired anymore. And I felt like I need a break. I didn't think that... I didn't know if I would start again or not, but it just got to be... It felt really negative in a lot of ways. And also it's, 
you know, it's Chicago's a difficult city in general. I think it's um, there's a lot of very talented people, and you know, some of them made it, some of them didn't. But it's it's difficult to uh, just stay motivated when like you're not where you want to be, if that makes sense. And so when I stopped, I was just kind of trying to figure myself out for a few years and doing odd jobs and whatnot. And then I had a band for two years, which I kind of, um, <laughs> it was not like, I enjoyed the production part of it, but I just kind of learned. Yeah. What kind of music was that? It was still electronic. Like I was with a vocalist that played synths and I did all the programming and stuff. And then live did like the sequencing and whatnot and also played a bit of uh-huh. but yeah I didn't really love that project I mean it was f- like fun making the music for me but I kind of realized I don't really want to do the the band thing and then when I met Sean um yeah I just felt like a second chance because I kind of fell in love with house music again even through that relationship because he grew up in Chicago he just moved back like the first night we hung out we went to smart bar and went to queen and just talked about like casual records and all the music that we loved and so it just kind of brought life back into it, but also that, um, I don't know the right word. Like, I just felt open to the future again and to pursuing it because I felt inspired. And also, I'd been a fan of, like, Hercules and Love Affair when I had these stupid office jobs and I was kind of sitting around. My friend showed me their music and I would watch videos of them on YouTube and I never thought I would meet any of the band. It's just like, you know, watching music videos, but I thought, Oh my God, there's people that look like me making music that I love. And it made me kind of start, um, messing around in the studio again, like around 2010. And then two years later I met Sean. So I I don't know if I manifested it or. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) all right. I'm going to, ask you about that particular story but just before we get there um let's just go back to the the very start of your DJing like what made you want to DJ in the first place um well long story (laughs) I mean it's kind of like my school I went to school two hours south of Chicago you had to so you're like 21 to get into clubs in Chicago raves were still going on then but I didn't know what raves were but it was 19 to get into clubs at my school and so the kids from down the hall took me to this nightclub the first week of school and basically like took my first E Nice. <laughs> and started, uh, st- started going there every weekend basically. And just, uh, you know, like researching DJs and that like met all my friends. They brought me to my first raves and stuff. And the first year it was just hanging out, going to parties. I didn't think I would ever start DJing. And then... And hang on a second. Let me, let me just stop you there. Like, what music and what DJs were these? Um, they, We had Chicago DJs come down on Thursday. So, like, Super Jane, uh, DJ Dehoda, Colette, uh, Justin Long came down. I think they even had Derek Carter at some point. Um, but, yeah, it was just, like, DJ Funk came down. Chicago DJs were on Thursdays. I think the party was called Liquid Thursdays, but the club was Orchid. Um, yeah. And then Raves, I mean, we saw everyone like Paul Johnson. Yeah. Everybody was was playing. So, yeah. Okay, and let me uh, let me ask you about uh quote unquote Raves in this context in particular. Like these are basically semi-illegal warehouse parties. Am I right in thinking? Exactly. 
yeah. So can you can you describe one in de- in detail? Yeah. Uh, well, the ones like where the colleges were were completely different because they were obviously like you know uh, they were fun, but the ones in Chicago were the crazy ones. We were like going to the roller rink on the south side and. It was just like you would arrive or you would have to call like a hotline and drive around until they gave you the address and then drive to the party and, uh, you know, park in a random parking lot. And yeah, it was they were crazy. And then you walk in and it's like 2000 kids off their face partying and amazing music. And yeah, they were proper. And then we would have to drive back to school like right after because it was yeah, it was the weekend and we were two hours away. So it was always an adventure. Right, sure, sure. I mean, my, my memory of, um, well, okay, so one of the things that we've talked about in relation to this sort of party, and it sort of colours my memory of those sorts of things a little bit, was the slightly, well, definitely powerful, but slightly under the surface sense of danger that you got at those parties. Is that part of your memory of them too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my car got broken into twice. We've had like all sorts of things. <laughs> We were out of gas money and we had to get to school, like when someone broke in and stole all our coats. I mean, we've had lots of, uh, I've had every rave experience. So. And to what extent is that part of the fun in your memory of it? I think so. And I think also like, you know, I was so used to just doing what I was supposed to do in life. Like, you know, go to university, play sports, whatnot. And this was just like such a different world to that and so I think that's what drew me to it because it was also you know it was like my coming out time in general not just like you know coming out as gay it was the first time I also met queer people because back then it was like it wasn't even anything you really talked about so um yeah it was just like a completely brand new world it felt like everything was possible and new and fresh and it was just like a massive period of discovery I think not just musically but um it was the first time I felt like I could be anything and be myself and I didn't have to follow this like you know go to school get married get a job sort of path um so yeah it was a lot of uh, a lot of that and it was really special just discovering all the different genres and the DJs and meeting friends and feeling invincible and doing really stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that translate then to like wanting to be a DJ? Like wanting to be involved at that kind of level? Um, so the first year I was partying loads and then I kind of like, I basically, I mean, this is a funny story because I was, I think it was the first time I took LSD or something. And then we went back to my friend's house for an after party and he had turntables set up and I just like started trying to scratch and in my mind, <laughs> okay. I thought I was like the next Qbert. So I was just standing there <laughs> for hours trying to scratch and like came home the next day, sobered up and was like convinced that I was going to be an amazing scratch DJ, b- bought scratch records, came back to my friend's house and tried to practice. And then I think like a week went by and he came down and was like, yeah, we really need to like teach you how to mix because my roommates, we can't listen to this horrible noise anymore. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I should learn how to mix. Um, and then, yeah, basically school, this was like the end of the school year. And so I went home and worked as a lifeguard like the whole summer and saved up for three months, like didn't drink, was totally sober, still going to parties, but kind of just 
had it in my mind that I was going to get turntables by the end of the summer and then made it happen and uh, went back to school, basically just stopped going to class and was practicing eight hours a day. And then I got my first gig like six months later at that same club uh, opening for um, DJ Colette. And yeah, it just kind of grew from there. But yeah, I mean, I would just... And what were you What were you playing? That house. Point? Yeah. Like mm. I st- when I first got into it, I didn't really know the difference of anything. I was listening to literally every- everything. Um, f- I remember Cassius and Benjamin Diamond and these kind of just French house stuff. And then I really got into Chicago stuff and also just kind of started going to gramophone and... Justin Long um, was working there at the time and he started kind of helping me find records and stuff. And yeah, I just discovered Chicago House. And so I was buying like everything, everything Chicago, classic music company and yeah, stuff like that. In the city at that point, like um, obviously this is some years after the whole thing kicked off, but like to what extent was the kind of but the heritage there in people's minds even then in that kind of I guess it was a mid period as we're as we're looking at it now I mean it's it's always there like it's such a prideful thing to be from Chicago and to be a DJ from there and I think there's a lot of um respect and pride with everyone there from the fans to the DJs to you know people working in the clubs it's it's definitely you know, it's it's in the blood. I think it's in the it's in the water there. As far as the scene goes, there's a definitely a massive um, pride to being from Chicago or growing up in that environment. Do you have a sense of like when that started? Because I mean, there must there must have been a point at which it went from being just a really cool current scene to something that it's proud of. You know, something that you're proud of being from that lineage. If you see what I mean. I mean, they invented it. So I think for them, like, obviously they were probably proud from the beginning, but for people like me that came into it, you know, as like the fourth generation, um, we were just... Yeah, but it's a different thing at that point, right? Of course. And so me just being like a 19-year-old kid around people like Gene Ferris or Derek Carter and, you know, seeing Mark Farina play and Luke Salmon and these like Super Jane and DJ Heather and... Diz and these figures, like, I was just like, uh, you know, I looked up to them. That was just like, they were, Justin Long was a mentor and I was really proud to be from there, but all my friends were from there and all the people that I admired and the DJs I looked up to. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, it was instant, but I'm not sure when it started. I just know it's definitely like, I mean, it's a general Chicago thing. Everyone from Chicago is proud to be from there. It's just like a, it's a hustle city. Um, there's a lot of pride in in the city in general. So yeah, did you have a like a favorite DJ at those early at that early point? I mean, Justin was definitely my mentor and who I spent most of my time with. And he did this Dopley party, and he asked me to be his opening resident when I like just turned 21. And so that kind of like I sp- like that's how I developed was playing with him for years and doing, you know, I started going to the UK and doing uh, Manchester and London and stuff like that and spending time, loads of time there as well. And Justin was playing Back to Basics at the time. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So we were up in, in Leeds hanging out as well. And yeah, my youth was kind of really spent mostly with him and playing with Heather and 
like I looked up to all of them, but I would say he was definitely the most influential. And he kind of, I mean, he plays all over the place from house, like techie stuff, industrial. And that was the thing about being a Chicago DJ. It's kind of like you just said you're a house DJ, but you play every genre because it's only like there's good music and bad music. And that was the thing that I picked up the most being from there is being really open um, musically and just liking different different things not being too focused on one i guess was there a point well okay at what point did you start to feel like really accepted as a dj or confident i suppose but also accepted in in the context of the scene well i kind of knew from the beginning like if you're in chicago you kind of just practiced until you don't fuck up and you don't really play out (laughs) until then because you're playing to a room full of djs and if you're not, uh, that's a great culture to be involved with. Have to absolutely, say. like it's a, it's 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 it is what it is. If you're not at your best or you fuck up, like people will remember that. I mean, it's it's a hardcore way to to think about it because I think you know everybody has weird moments, but it just made me work a lot harder. I had to practice like until I was you know at that level um, because I was around people at that level, and yeah. It was uh, it was fun. Looking back at it, I'm like really proud, proud to come from that. But I don't know. I think you know. I didn't. Let me. Let, sorry. Let me just ask you a sidebar question. There is it still like that in Chicago? Honestly, I have no idea because I've only been back. Okay, <laughs> I've, right. I've been back like <laughs> okay. twice since I moved. So um, I'm sure it is because it's full of talented people, and it's always like that. It's it's a city full of you know you. It's a city full of doers who aren't talkers. Like you're not, you don't walk around selling yourself or talking about yourself. Like you just want to show people with your actions. And so, you know, if you want to show people you're a good DJ, you have to kind of earn it. But no one's going to give you that respect at all until they see it. So, yeah. I mean, I was confident from the early days because I had really good mentors around me, but they also made me kind of like I definitely knew that I couldn't fuck up <laughs> like I had I had like you know it wasn't one of those like they weren't going to tell me that they're proud of me unless I did a good job they were really very straightforward <laughs> right, so yeah. yeah but yeah those early days at Smart Bar I kind of like that's where I learned you know because it was we would start at 10 it would be like sold out or packed by 11 Justin's party so even though I was opening, I was kind of like learning to just bring the room all the way up and then still playing to a full dance floor for a bit before um, they would kick off. And I really developed those years because it was like eight or, yeah, about eight years we played together. Right. Okay. That's an interesting thing, actually. So playing warm up and kind of learning how to warm up properly. I mean, there's been a fair bit of hand wringing on the show about uh, the extent to which the warm-up set has been neglected in in recent years what's your what's your take on that I agree on that and it's a shame because I think you know I've heard so many stories of like newer DJs refusing to do warm-ups now because they think that it's just like beneath them and for me it's like that's how you learn to be really good and humble and also like I could play any hour of the night you know what I mean like I'm quite happy opening closing like it's easy to come in and headline and just play bangy I mean I don't do that anyway I guess but uh, like you know what I mean it's just it's such a skill set that I think is so beneficial for a DJ that and it used to be 
we never thought of it as like a downgrade or like it was just a rite of passage. I mean, no one was going to give you a headlining slot in Chicago until you opened for years. Kind of, you had to prove yourself. And so I think, you know, having people thrown into headlining sets without having to go through that, I think it kind of lowers the bar for our industry because it's just like, I think it's really important to have that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, lowering the bar of the industry is such a good way of putting it, actually. And um, yeah, I think it means that, yeah, people don't develop the necessary skills in the kind of in that kind of way i mean just just the whole concept of quote-unquote headlining and and quote-unquote sold out shows not that that whole terminology is kind of contrary to how it should be i mean I, that's a loaded phrase so i have to know how something should be right but i think i think there's some truth in that that's true i mean it depends i guess what your goal is from it you know and like our, our purpose i think you know there's different kinds of artists um, I'm not like a, I don't love to talk about myself. I'm not like a hands in the air DJ. For me, it was always about the music and I didn't want to be the center of attention. And I think it was easier when we started because when you played records, like you just looked it down and you weren't really like, there wasn't, <laughs> I mean, that was the show. It was, the music was the show and the music stole the show. If I watched the DJ, I was watching their hands and the way that the crowd would react from behind. But now, um, like, everything's changed, so it's quite, it's a difficult, uh, yeah, I don't know, I find it difficult sometimes, this industry, but I also, I think, realized this year, because I just had a point where I just reached, like, a dip where I just didn't feel like I fit anymore so much about with what's happening, um, and I kind of realized, like, if I want to keep going with this, and I do... I need to kind of focus on the things that I have control over and the things that I like, you know, and if there's things that I don't respect and I don't really want to participate in, I kind of have to take a step back from that, if that makes sense, because, yeah, so I don't even remember what the question was now. I just kept talking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's um, like the, the comment about watching the DJ's hands and watching how the crowd react is a really interesting one because I think I think increasingly now the crowd tends to react to how the DJ reacts to a tune yeah so you have this real kind of like performative element to a lot of DJ sets now where DJ is like really kind of physical in the in the nature of their performance right it's, it's like the complete opposite of like looking down at your at your records and trying to keep keep it in time right and and the crowd seems to I think quite often now yeah look for a cue from a DJ of how to react to a track. Yeah, and then I'm giving them none of that. So I don't know how that <laughs> that's working. Like I always just I mean, I'm always doing something, so it's like it's difficult because I'm just I'm always mixing or looking for the next thing because like I'm not planning, you know. It's just I think when you come from that era of playing records, it's just like that as well. So I mean, I look up and smile sometimes. I force myself to do it. Like, That's nice of you. I don't, I don't want to look miserable the entire time, but I am really happy on the inside. It's just I'm really focused on the tunes. And yeah, I don't know. It's hard. I think people get used to it. But like certain clubs, obviously, people like it makes a difference if there's phones allowed or not. I've noticed, obviously, because if you're playing a festival or somewhere where people just have their phones out the whole time, then you kind of have to interact more. You don't have a choice because that's what they want um you know to an extent i'm not gonna like just play tunes and have my hands up the whole time but i 
like I at least look up a bit more. But if it's a situation like Panorama Bar, even Robert Johnson and places where like there's no phones and people are just dancing, I think they're just quite happy watching you do your thing and listening. Um, and I wish there was more of that. I miss that. Those are my favorite gigs for that reason, because I don't know. I just, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Um, we the, the, Well, the question was originally uh, you, well, the, the kind of moment at which you felt um, accepted. And then, so you went on to talk about, you know, moving, well, playing in Europe and, and traveling. And you've already mentioned that around 2008, you, you stopped. So um, one of the things we've talked about recently on the show quite a lot is minimal. And judging, I was reading a, a couple of interviews of yours earlier today, and I believe that you weren't a massive fan of minimal. So, so what? <laughs> no, I was like, it's, it's, it's not really that I was playing it in the beginning. I wasn't a fan of like all of it. I just felt like there was a shift where... Um, I didn't like I was in love and I still am with like the old records house and techno and I wasn't as into minimal as that and then it felt like I didn't feel anything I don't know I didn't feel inspired that was probably a personal thing as well but I just didn't feel like there was like an evolution that happened that you know, for me person personally. Okay, well, let me let me ask you a question then that I asked Ambivalent last week concerning his LA Four A project. And we were talking about like the the legacy of of the classic records, right, and the the extent to which dance music as a whole, I think house and techno in particular, are quite nostalgic in nature when looking back on the sort of classic kind of an era, and whether that's I guess healthy for a scene which is supposed to be forward looking like what do you think about that as a as a general kind of feature of the way the scene kind of is well um i'm trying to think i do play a lot of classics but i also play a lot of new stuff but i think you know for me the way i always thought of it is like those timeless classics that still sound really fresh they're they just push the scene more because you want to like that's your goal as a producer is to create things that people can play in 30 years that, that sound just as fresh um, so for me, like, I don't think of that as like holding anything back. I think, um, you know, it's inspired a lot of music and a lot of new music as well. You know, there's kids that never heard, like, you know, they were born 20 years after those tracks were made and they're listening to that stuff now and it's inspiring them to create new versions of it. Um, but then I guess that in itself though, like to what extent is, is the kind of attempts to reproduce those records like yeah is that do you think like how how much of a problem is that do you think at a general level i mean is it a problem at all i don't know if it's a problem but i would say it's i guess it's boring if you're just copying people's tracks that you know are successful i mean that's not really pushing the scene forward but i think there are people doing it in a way that is pushing it forward and doing like a different interpretation on it and kind of putting I mean, art in general, that's what it is. You're going to have producers that are really unique and they're doing their their own interpretation of it. And then you have people that just like literally sound like everyone else and you can't tell the difference in the demos. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I guess that's that's the problem in general of any creative field. There's only so many chords and notes and things and, you know, 
I do think there's a lot of really good music coming out now of different genres and stuff. And I feel like it's become so much more accessible um, and easier to learn to produce. So we're going to have a lot more creativity now. And then also a lot of really horrible things as well. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I didn't think the Vanga Boys would make a comeback. That was like a <laughs> that was a surprise of the decade for me. But yeah. So okay, so we get to two thousand eight. Like, was there a um in that in that period from from when you start? So you started around started playing out around two thousand, I guess. Um, was there a noticeable change that you can and maybe that you weren't necessarily aware of at the time, or maybe you were? But like looking back on it now. Like, was there a notable change in the nature of the kind of the broader dancing between in those in the, in that period up between that like two thousand two thousand eight kind of time? Um, I think the music changed for sure, and there started to be, I mean, EDM kicked off. There was a lot of like subgenres, like minimal and uh, like we God. There was so many different house things, which house, fidget house. Like I don't remember all the beat ports. Um, I mean, I think the scenes always change. There's always going to be different, um, you know, periods of trendy things that go away. And but I think house and techno have always obviously um, stayed around. But EDM definitely kind of grew in the 2000s in the states. That was a big, big difference that I saw as well. Like how big that scene got, the commercial scene. I mean, I guess I'm asking, but what was to, to what extent were those were, were changes sort of um, part of the reason that you've kind of fell out of love with it to the extent that you did by 2008? I mean, for me, I think a lot of it was like you know I have like super high anxiety and I'm very hard on myself and I'm critical of myself and I like I knew I was really good at DJing, but I just felt you know I just felt like. I'm never going to make a go of it. And I'm turning, you know, I'm like 28 or 29 at this point. And it was kind of like, I just felt burnt out. Like I just felt burnt out, burnt out from trying. And, you know, it's like your dreams kind of dissipate if you feel like they're not uh, growing or you don't know. And we didn't really, I mean, we didn't really have a support system. Like nobody, even though I had mentors and things like that musically, like nobody was going to tell me like this is the way you do things and like youtube didn't really exist like there was no tutorials i was learning how to produce on my own um or maybe it existed but it wasn't what it is now and uh you know it just was a lot to do on your own without having any kind of like guidance or support system or knowing how to make it into a proper career and when i was young i think i was just like also naive because when you're 20 you're not really thinking like of how you're going to earn a living. You just think everything's going to happen for you and it's possible, you know? So you don't have these, like, I think it was just more personal than it was about the music, but I think the timing of it was also like EDM kicking off and things that I'm not super into, I think, but it wasn't, it wasn't because of that. I think it was more the social pressures and just kind of the self doubt and yeah. So it was um, what, as you have said, um, or you kind of implied that you know, DJing is the first thing, and then getting into production was was sort of later on. Like, how much of how much of the kind of um, how much of the desire to get into production was based upon wanting to support your DJ career? I mean, had you how much music had you done? Actually, is, a, is another question um, prior to becoming a DJ. 
Um, I didn't do any prior to becoming, so I started producing like around 2003. So it was a few years after I started DJing, but, um, I never wanted to do it to benefit my DJ career. It was just kind of like a thing that I looked at separately, but I knew that I wanted to make music. But I mean, I, when I started, it was literally like I had a cracked copy of reason. I was just sitting around the living room trying to make loops and then it evolved into <laughs> getting a copy of logic. Right. This is a, this is a well-trodden path, right? The reason why I put it like that is because again, like just going back to last week's show with Ambivalent, um, he was explicitly given the advice that if he wanted to get more gigs, he should stop making tunes. So that wasn't something that happened for you. No, no. And I mean, yeah, I just wanted to make music because I loved it. It wasn't, um, I never, I never made records to get more DJ gigs, although obviously it turned into, um, that's what helped me grow my, my career and stuff. But I always looked at it separately. Like for me, it's, it was like therapy. I mean, not at the start. It was very frustrating. I think I hated everything I made for the first, probably the first decade. But as soon as I started working with Sean, I kind of like, that was it was completely different because it was really inspiring and like I mean we've never fought we get on really well and I respected him so much and his other work and so just having that extra person there I think I just grew my confidence and stuff and grew as a producer as a result but yeah I still you know I would make records even if I quit DJing I just like making music so yeah absolutely um okay so yeah tell me about the the period where you weren't doing music like what did you find yourself doing in those kind of I guess it was like three three years or so two two three years yeah I think like I had every odd job I was a dog walker I worked on the floor of the stock exchange I worked at a club doing like flyers and I don't know what the fuck I mean like literally I just did every every gig that kind of flew at me and then um I met this girl that was the singer in my band project through friends. And then we kind of just started messing around making music together. Um, and that was a, around the same time I discovered uh, Hercules Love Affair as well. So I just like started producing again. And, you know, even though that project was completely different, it helped me grow like technically because, you know, we were mixing in proper studios and working together and she was kind of classically trained pianists and doing really cool vocal effects and stuff. So it kind of, even though it wasn't, um, you know, it didn't keep going, um, taught me a lot. And so it was easier to transition into doing music. I really want to do after that. Um, but yeah, it was just like three years of trying to figure your shit out <laughs> and then it all came together, luckily. And was music always something that was kind of there at the back of your mind? I mean, obviously, when you start a new project, it kind of implies that it, that it was. But like, I mean, did you have a sense that you were going to come back to doing it in a serious way? Yes. I mean, at the time that I was doing the band, I was really dedicated to it. And I thought that that would be like we were getting our songs licensed and doing shows and doing proper, like started touring and won some contests and did random shit. But, you know, towards the end of that project, once I met Sean, like I wasn't even listening to house at the time. I kind of like in the, so what was, what was the band called by the way? We haven't, uh, haven't it was that. called shut eye, but don't look it up. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fine. It definitely will now. <laughs> so. Oh no, no. Yeah. I mean, she's very talented Alicia that I worked with. It's just like, I just, yeah, it didn't work out for me. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
it was a it was a, just three years of growth and trial and error and kind of you know hitting the bottom and kind of getting back up and you know through that all these amazing things happened yeah tell me the story about meeting sean in the first place so uh my b- band's manager scott he knew sean and command from like doing events and bringing them to chicago and so when sean moved back after he left the band um scott just asked one day if like sean's looking for producers do you want to work with him and i kind of fell out of my chair and was like why didn't you tell me sooner <laughs> because he knew they were my favorites uh my favorite band and so yeah, he just came to my house and we were like, I, I started a few loops for him. And yeah, then we went to Smart Bar and hung out and talked about Chicago House and then just kind of started working together. And then I kind of knew. So sorry, is is he from Chicago originally? Yeah. Yeah. He's from Chicago, but he left when he was 18. Yeah. So he went to university and uh, then moved to New York and then, um, yeah, then was in the band and touring for those other years and then came back basically but we we were raised on the same music um so we had a lot in common and he's still my favorite person um but it's just been like i think i found found the music again and f- found myself through that relationship and had you continued to go to clubs during this kind of hiatus period so were you still going to smart bar to check it out and that, you know? no not really like i just kind of put like it was like quitting smoking cold turkey. Like I just kind of, yeah. Cause I didn't, it just felt painful towards the end. You know, it's, it felt like I needed like a complete, uh, breakup at the time. And I did start DJing like when I was in the band project, but more like kind of a tallowy sound because we were opening for other bands and stuff like that sometimes when I would DJ. So it kind of came back through that, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't clubbing full on and I wasn't really buying like new records or anything until after. Yeah. Okay. So can you, yeah, just describe in some detail then, like how kind of reconnecting with the music, how, how, how it was and, and what it led to and what it, how it man- manifested itself. I mean, it kind of felt like the first time I started, it's, it's weird. Cause you kind of go back. Like it's like, it is like, it felt like a whole new life and a whole new like um world of possibilities if that makes sense because it just felt like I was getting a second chance and to do it better and to do it right as an adult and like to know how to do things properly because at that point I was a bit more educated on the industry and you know and I knew that that's what I wanted to do and so you know the second time around I was like no I'm gonna do things the right way and make sure that I make it into a career whereas when I was 20 I was like no I don't want it to feel like a job and then just doing (laughs) everything irresponsibly and then also like not even realizing that I'm forcing myself out of a career that I want um whereas this time it was like no you know you're gonna work towards what you actually want in life um yeah so it just it just felt brand new like all the, I mean, it was brand new. I didn't know any labels or DJs. I was kind of like learning all over again and researching and digging for tracks. And because there was like the scene changed so much, you know, it was 2012 at this point, 2013. So obviously our scene changes all the time. But yeah, I had to kind of relearn my own taste as well and just start buying music again. So it just felt really inspiring and it felt fresh again. 
like I just felt completely yeah do you remember what the what the new stuff back then was was what grabbed you do you remember like the the key things that drew you back into it um what was I listening to at the time like god I don't know I mean it was still kind of minimal wasn't it like like not not full on <laughs> I mean, I guess Minimal had kind of like given way to uh, what was known as Deep House, I believe, at the time. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was that. But I was kind of like rebuying old things that I had on vinyl as well as like, you know, like the early Maya, Jane Cole stuff. I mean, all the Deep House, like, and then... I mean, that that, that actually was a big change, wasn't it? Because, I mean, that was the period of digitization, I guess, between 2008 and 2013, during those five years, like that's really when the cdjs kind of took over i think in in a lot of clubs totally and was that something was that something you noticed yeah i mean i didn't play cds ever i went from like records to serato with vinyl because i just couldn't it's like i fucking hate cds i'm never gonna do this shit so yeah so when i started again it was like i think it took me i still was doing serato with the vinyl but at that point nobody else was and so it was like you don't want to bring your your laptop to the club or plug it in anymore everybody was like yeah you're that that person who's fiddling around with the mixer yeah everybody was over it by then so i was like fuck it i'll just try this usb thing like how hard can it be and the first day i showed up to our party like my usb stick i didn't reformat it so like i had no music i couldn't play (laughs) i was like this is bullshit it's like one of those like old men yells at cloud like i'm not i'm not doing this and then once it started working though i was so happy i was like my back doesn't hurt i have an endless amount of tracks and I can loop them so yeah I mean that part was great and also it just allowed me to keep like to just buy loads of music and figure out what I like and what I want and my taste I mean I think I was playing a lot of like new disco stuff too at the time like Magician and Tiger and Woods and that kind of sound because I I like that new wavy sound as well as like classics and they're just kind of getting back into you know Chicago stuff as well but yeah I wasn't super into like the deep house minimal stuff but I was still I was just buying everything and I kind of at this time I was like I don't want any influences I just want to do what I like I'm just gonna try it and see what you know what holds my attention what works but I was really open you know I think because you get older you just don't give a fuck what people think anymore (laughs) So I dropped that, like, trying to be, like, you know, too underground or fit into this or fit into that. I was just kind of like, you know, this time, you know, I'm older and I'm going to do what I want. And, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, tell me about how it how it then developed when working with Sean and, um, yeah. Well, we finished so much music. I mean, we just, like, worked really quickly. So the first record we finished... I think it was actually like his vocals that got rejected from a label and then I just wrote music around one of the tracks and then we finished two others and then we sent them to Derek Carter and uh, we didn't hear back at first. Then I guess he sent them to Luke Solomon and he wrote us right away and was like, we want to sign this. Um, I think he said like, (laughs) it was funny. I think he's like, Derek doesn't like this that much, but I like it. Um, So we're going (laughs) to sign it. But then Derek actually ended up doing a remix on it. So maybe he changed his mind. But I mean, like, I love Derek. I worshipped him. So for us, like, that was the label. I had a whole, like, section of my record shelf dedicated to. And it was kind of, I think, you know, when you're uh, not new, but kind of, you know, you have your goal labels and you always think, like, if this happens, like, that's it. 
I can retire. My career's like, that's it. I just wanted to be on classic. Um, so it kind of kicked off from there. I mean, the first record came out and did, did well. And we, uh, at that time started twirl as, but as a party with Mr. White, uh, you know, Mr. White that the sun can't compare with Larry and Larry. Yeah. Um, so we were doing monthly parties, um, and then we were just, we had so many demos and, you know, when you release with bigger labels, you're kind of waiting for a year at least. And so we just decided to start the label just to have stuff coming out because we were finishing so much music. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of kicked off. We just had our friends do remixes and, you know, we were growing the label and doing more stuff with classic and then crust on rebels and yeah. Okay. So Okay, so just to think about the label for a moment, um, what was, uh, had you had any experience of doing that kind of thing prior to that? No, I mean, not at all. It was kind of, I mean, like Darren, I knew Darren, our label manager from San Francisco. Uh, he's he were our label manager for the distributor. So it was kind of like I had friends that had labels. They helped me a little bit. We met with... Um, Jeff that does large recordings, he kind of gave us like a pep talk and some tips and stuff like that. And I kind of, all I knew is I need a distributor and mastering and PR. And so we just kind of, you know, went through the people that we know and our connections and stuff like that and got everything set up. But still, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing still, I guess I do. We knew that we have our tastes, so the A and R part was taken care of, and um, we obviously like both had a lot of friends in the industry, so we wanted to kind of keep it friends and family, and you know, work with people we really like and respect, and also just have like a diverse label with different kinds of not just musically, but you know, people, yeah. But yeah, as far as the business side, I mean, it's not like you know, I don't know. It's it's difficult to run a label because it just feels like you're just like bleeding money, but doing something you love that you're proud of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that's kind of kind of why I was asking because you know you, as you mentioned, like this time around, we're trying to do it as a career, right? And um, as you say, running a label is not always the best. Well, I mean, I was going to say it's not always the best career move, but like, I mean, certainly financially, it can be problematic absolutely i mean that's just the labor of love i feel like it's definitely i don't expect to uh be a millionaire for my record label i will be lucky like if we can just keep it going and have it be sustainable and pay for itself but i mean now obviously there's things like streaming and other ways to earn income which are helpful and so it's not just you're not relying on the sales and stuff like that and but I think there's something special about growing like a family of artists and leaving a musical legacy that was always my goal as a producer is to like leave music behind that I'm proud of because no matter what happens you know with DJing it's like you go through the roller coaster of you know one day you're popular one day you're not blah 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 and who cares anyway but with producing it's like you're always going to have that catalog to look back on. Yeah, I mean, le- legacy is a—it's an interesting one. I mean, I've I've asked this question a few times, and people people are quite often sort of reluctant to talk about themselves in that kind of a way. But I think I think 
um, I think most basically, I think basically all musicians do think about it, even if they're sometimes reluctant to admit it. So that's something you, you think about sort of explicitly. Yeah, I mean, I I was talking to someone about this also. It's like I could look back at like even like you know two three years ago, like I could hear the progression in the tracks, and so I don't mean legacy as in like I'm a superstar and I've made music for generate uh, but you know what i mean like oh it doesn't have to be that though right it's just it's taking yeah it's just having some sense of what you've done i guess over time right yeah it's like looking at a 20 years photo album you know like you see the way that you've grown and your life has developed and so i feel like it's the same thing like listening back to someone's catalog because you can see how they've grown and how their taste has changed or like how they've developed technically and like that's the way i've always looked at it it's like i want to be proud of my body of work and I want to like hear the growth and so I'm kind of happy that those first tracks aren't so polished because otherwise it's you know it's like I'm glad that I've grown as a producer even though I'm like oh these are weird um (laughs) you know I think everybody goes through that especially if like you've grown a lot technically sure so yeah tell me a bit about the party actually because as you mentioned like we um yeah it was initial 12 was initially a party so yeah tell me about tell me about that where where was it so it was actually it was at a like a a gay club called berlin actually which is funny funny enough but my manager scott that introduced me and sean like he was doing thursdays there so we just did once a month and we brought like uh bless madonna and Derek carter um ellie escobar i think carrie nation uh yeah loads of our friends basically it was just like a fun fun party all friends and family um i just didn't like throwing parties because i felt like that little kid like waiting for little people to come to their birthday i know exactly what you mean yeah. you know like that. <laughs> i hate that feeling it's so it's awful yeah i and i'm already like so anxious so i would take it so personally especially if i really liked like the guests that was like why isn't anyone here and like sean would be like well it's 10 30 everything's fine and then obviously people would show up and stuff but yeah, I just, you know, I'm not like a promoter at heart. I'd like I'd love to do like curation and things like that with the label later, like we'd hope to grow into that. Um but I don't know if I want to like be uh you know, a promoter. I think that job's really difficult, especially if it's like your baby. I mean, yeah, I think it takes a very specific kind of a person to do it well. And that's definitely not me. I've I've tried my hand at it many times. I just, yeah, I just, I it really stresses me out. It really gets on top of me. I'm fine. Yeah, and I just like then it feels like a business. Does that make sense? I don't know. Not that DJing doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what it is, I mean, it is the sharp end of the industry, right? It's like your, you know, your <laughs> successes and failures are all too clear <laughs> when you're a promoter, right? Ex- exactly. And then, yeah people are mad at you if you don't earn enough at the bar and yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of hassle and it's you know I like the the support part of it I like like bringing our friends in and playing and that part was fun but like the rest of it it's just I'm not into it bravo to people that do that stuff but yeah I think I preferred the creative the creative side absolutely so okay so at what point we talked about you know eventually you moving to Berlin and how you'd been I guess what yeah well you wanted to leave Chicago for a while at that point that was uh, end of 2015 so tell me a little bit about that how the how that kind of developed from getting back into it to the point that you wanted to leave and come to you I think I got brought 
in to play like London and Berlin and a few dates, I think Belgium and I don't know, but it was like basically like the first little tour that I, I did. I mean, I was still like not a proper one, obviously I wasn't earning loads of money, but, um, it was just, I just felt like it was possible at that point. And so Berlin kind of, because I felt at home right away and I met a few people and I was just kind of, I just didn't think twice about it. I was just, I just bought a flight and I was like, fuck it, just sell everything and go. Because I knew if I waited, I would just talk myself out of it. So it was kind of like a do or die situation. Like I knew I wouldn't be happy if I didn't go. And I knew that I needed to do that for my career as well to get to where I, where I would like it to be. Um, and so, yeah, I just didn't look back. It was really like, yeah, I think my parents thought I was insane, which now, now, now looking back at it, I'm like, okay. And then I left on Thanksgiving of all the days. So that was pretty funny. I was like, bye. Thank you. (laughs) Nice knowing you America. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It was, yeah, I had like a, life-altering kind of experience also like right before I met Sean one of my close friends died really suddenly and I saw him like literally like three days before and then he was just gone so I think that that shifted my perspective a lot because I was just kind of like you know you think you have all this time and you're waiting to do certain things and after that I was just like a yes person I was just said like you're gonna just say yes to all the things you want to do in life and then yeah, like literally met Sean a few months after that and then everything kind of kicked off. But it was because of that. Like I just stopped doubting myself and stopped kind of giving into those uh, feelings and just rolling with it. So Berlin was just kind of one of those. And luckily it worked out. I'm still here. Yeah. I mean, did you have a sense that you were leaving something behind? Cause, I mean, by the sound of things like you know, coming back into the scene and, you know, starting a party, starting a label, you're, you're building something there, something tangible. And obviously it's, it's, it's different, you know, moving to Europe now than it was 50 years ago or whatever. Do you know what I mean, it's, it's still, it's a global scene and you're, you're not really leaving anything, but actually, um, you know, local scenes are still, I mean, your immediate surroundings are still you know, really significant and coming to a new city is is coming to a new, uh, well, obviously it's coming to a new place, but like, you know, you're coming to a new local scene there. So did you have a sense that you were taking a risk or or that you were, you know, leave, leaving something which was valuable? Um, I knew that I was taking a risk and, but I like, obviously Chicago's also valuable but I I knew that I had to do it like I just for my personal life as well like I just really needed a change so I just thought no matter what the risk like it's just something I need to do to to grow and to survive and I feel like I knew it would be something I would regret not doing you know because it was like I would talk about moving for like eight years and never leave and so this at this time it was just like I have to do this Um, I think it's also, you know, like, because my childhood, we moved so quickly and like suddenly it's just difficult to kind of leave your, your home and your sense of stability. But in this case, it was really exciting. And like, luckily Sean kind of already had friends here from touring with Hercules and, um, he was here a lot, like the first few years I was here. So it didn't feel like I'd left that, that behind at all. Like we were still making music and he was here, you know almost like half the year I think the first year I was there on and off so it's still you know I felt like I left home like now I miss it way more I think since the pandemic it really hit me um 
but I still, I don't think I would live in America again. Just, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> where did you move to? Like what area? Where, like, where did you pitch up when you got to Berlin? Uh, Nikon. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, I had a friend's room for, t- I did the whole shuffle. Like I did the two months in one room and then the shared four people thing. And then, uh, I got my own place luckily, like within the first year. So that worked out, but yeah, I'm still in Icon. Mm. Okay. And okay. So you, and you found it immediately positive yes of course i had my like you know the bus driver yelled at me and i didn't know he was saying so i was like crying on the bus from the (laughs) airports i mean everybody has these like i don't know what this is at the grocery store kind of things like i'm coming home with really gross salad dressing because i thought it was ranch and it was not and then you know like peanut butter chips that i just thought were cheetos like you know there was like a cultural (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was definitely I mean let's be honest food in Germany is pretty terrible it's it's you know it's it's gotten better but yes I'm not gonna I don't I don't want to say anything they're gonna come to my house and not <laughs> deport me but it's you know we're I would say at least it's not poisoned like in the states so we've got that going we don't have all the chemicals from from America right in the food sure. so there's a positive side but yeah I've had some terrible food as well the tacos were really like that was when I ate Mexican food the first time I think I thought I was going to move back because <laughs> <laughs> that felt really wrong but I actually like ended up buying a tortilla press and like just learned how to do okay. everything from scratch but that was a that was a big factor I was like I cannot I cannot with your German tacos it just feels right feels really yeah very sensitive about Mexican food yeah and they just don't yeah it doesn't really it doesn't really exist any kind of meaningful way um okay so I believe you played Panorama quite soon after you moved over is that right yeah I think January 2016 so yeah like two months after and that was for the first time yeah that was the first time and I got to do the opening actually the first time. I don't know if that was a test or not, but it was great. And I remember like I met Spencer Parker because he came down. He was friends with uh, one of my friends, and I was such a fan of his music. And like at that time where you know nobody's there except for the list people, so it's like five people upstairs. Like he was just always by my side and kind of like being like, "Mate, it sounds really good." And yeah, so I had a really good time. And I had already been going there for two months because Sean was. Sean was with me in Berlin when I moved. He was there the first couple months and he was playing there already. And so I was just going with him every weekend and I was in love with it. It's like, this is the best, the best club, like the craziest energy I'd experienced ever, really. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think. I mean, it's difficult to imagine anything much better, to be honest, certainly for house music, right? It's just, um, mm, I can't think of a better experience that I've had personally either, either on the dance floor or actually playing because I mean sometimes you get these places which are great to play in but actually aren't that great when you actually find yourself out on the floor but in Panorama Bar like both things are absolutely true yeah it just feels really like monumental like almost just like this giant not like weight in a bad way but I don't know how to explain it do you know what I mean like I don't know I would just get like super emotional playing there as well like even practicing I would just like play these songs and start crying at my house <laughs> just like <laughs> dancing around alone I was like this is embarrassing but it's true um yeah it's just like a very 
you know, especially those years, I think for me, because I was so new to it, um, pre-COVID, it was just really like every set was really special. And every time I would go there just to hang out, it was just really, really inspiring, especially, I mean, it was such a big, like, I don't know how to explain it. It didn't feel at all like the scene, even where I came from, it was just like, not worse or better, but just totally different. It was such a big, big club as well. Yeah, it definitely feels unique. I mean, I remember I've told the story many times on the show about the first time I walked in there and was just, you know, blown away by it. And that was like way back in the in 2007, like in the in the in the minimal days, actually. And actually, yeah, that that was that was my that was my initial thing. It was the first time I'd really been on a minimal dance floor, um, and it is definitely different now. But it's it's definitely also the same in just the kind of atmosphere that the whole building seems to have like it's it's something like unlike anywhere else that i've thought i've been yeah it's crazy i still can't really explain it to people i feel it's like you just have to go and then you know yeah it's completely intangible actually i mean some 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 clubs you can you know quite accurately sort of uh like enunciate what they what they feel like but i mean Panorama is and, and the Burkhine generally is, is something which is very difficult to put into words yeah exactly and yeah i have like three clubs that make me cry <laughs> or made me cry while djing so it's like that one kiev and robert johnson i think yeah so I just leave it at that. I'm like they're all very different from each other, but yeah. Actually, why don't you why don't you describe Robert Johnson? Because that's something we have not really talked about on the show before. And I try and get like people to put into words actually what it's like to be in a club and what what, what they consist of. So yeah, the first time I played there, I I like I described it as like getting a hug from 200 people because that's what it, it like that's what it feels like. You can see like every face in the room and like they're right in front of you, but then it's just like I mean I'm little so it almost feels like they're slightly above and I mean there's people dancing a little bit higher but like you could see almost every face in the crowd so it just feels really intimate but like the sound is so uh I can't like even that rotary it's just like it feels like driving a really expensive car I'm always like you can hear every little thing so I just always want to touch the knobs like I'm just constantly mixing because it's just so much fun it's like driving. I mean, I don't know. I don't have an expensive car, but I imagine that's that's what it's like to to like ride around in a Ferrari. You just um, enjoy it, oh, and the sound is just like it's crystal clear. It's the most ideal space I've ever played. Okay, well, this has been great. I've got actually I've got a couple more. Uh, one of them is. One of them was a hard one. I was actually going to ask, ask it out the front, but then I was re- I was kind of conscious that I'd already asked one difficult question first. So, like asking a second one was probably kind of overkill. <laughs> but so I'll put it back till now. So, um, yeah, you mentioned that you you were Jewish refugees coming from Ukraine. So, how do you think? How do you feel about the way anti-Semitism is? dealt with or manifest itself in the dance scene. That's this is a, something that we've talked a little bit about on the show before. Um, and um, it's something that I feel, I think like as a scene, generally speaking, we do quite well at, you know, broad diversity issues, but sometimes anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism seems like a bit of an afterthought and is not really taken as seriously as it probably should do. I mean, how do you feel about that, generally speaking, as, a, as an issue? Um... I think, 
I mean, I think the scene now does take every every issue seriously, and we're a lot more open and critical of each other and things that were previously like when we started out. I mean, you could get away with murder literally, and a lot of people got away with a lot of things for for years. And I think now people are a lot more outspoken when things are wrong, you know, and like if it comes to anti-Semitism and racism and things that obviously should be completely out of dance music. Um, I think, you know, it's good that people stand up for, for the right side of things and people get called out and reprimanded for their behavior, but obviously more could always be done and it would be nice if, you know, people that behave like this were kept out of, uh, it in general. Um, Obviously, we live in the real world, so you have all sorts of characters, and unfortunately, like people don't even half of them don't know where this music came from anymore, um, which is crazy. But yeah, I mean, do you agree um, that anti-Semitism is sometimes seen as a sort of secondary importance with this stuff in the scene? I mean, I don't think that. I think it's. Uh, I think people would call it out if if it was you know, noticeable. I don't think it's, it's a secondary issue. I think, um, it's just as, as important as any other cause for justice. Um, I haven't noticed like it being overlooked or forgotten, but by any means, I think maybe I'm in a bubble because I'm around people that are very socially conscious, um, and from lots of different communities. And so I think, you know, these issues get called out right away. So to me, I haven't noticed that it's been a uh, secondary. I don't know if that's a good, I don't know if that's a good answer. No, well, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's completely, uh, I think it is subjective, right? Cause I mean, if, if you don't notice it, then, you know, I mean, I have to say that I certainly have detected cases where, or certainly noticed individual cases where people have said incendiary things which have not received as much attention as they might have done had they been on a on a different issue but i mean i mean it's it's, it's a completely acceptable answer you, know? you can send me those people and i can yell at them for you. oh i'm happy to do so absolutely <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i'm just like uh, you know if someone's an asshole i would call them out straight away in any in any capacity so i think i'm around pretty decent people that are usually like on the right side of issues and so I don't notice, uh, I guess. Mm. As, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, last question then. I mean, maybe this is harder. Uh, just give me your three favorite Chicago house tracks. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, your Love, Jamie Principal, Frankie. Um, Cashmere, Day by Day, Green Velvet Mix. And I would say Dream States. Derek Carter and Cashmere. Right, well, that was easy. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I hope I, like, yeah, I can send you the, well, you know them anyway, but I'm like, I always remember either, like, one word in the track name or the artist. So, actually, right. actually, <laughs> okay. it is difficult. And I'm like, what if I butchered this? Then I would be banned from Chicago for the rest of my existence. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, at least I can mix them together so it works. Right. Sure. Okay. Well, listen, Alinka, this has been great. Thanks for your time. It's been awesome. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a linker and interesting conversation. Our paths had never crossed before getting on the phone to record that last week. But she's a really interesting person with an interesting story. And it was great to get some first-hand accounts of stuff like the rave scene in the Midwest and, you know, her experiences coming to Europe as an American and also actually, you know, in the context of having heritage in Ukraine and all of that stuff too. Yeah, some interesting stuff, absolutely. And yeah, another good one. Another good one. I think you'll agree. So... um. We're done. I'm not going to prattle on for much longer or any longer. In fact, I mentioned at the top, you can support the show on Patreon. So please do that if you're feeling generous. Patreon.com slash scuba official. Follow the Spotify playlist and join us in the Discord. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord if you're a Discord person. And if you're not, then I highly recommend joining because it's kind of like social media, but without the annoying stuff, basically. So yeah, we'd love to see you there. So join us and I will see you Otherwise, back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.